BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns By Arnold Bennett Chapter 9 The Great Newspaper War 1. When Denry and his mother had been established a year and a month in the new house at Bleakridge, Denry received a visit one evening which perhaps flattered him more than anything had ever flattered him. The visitor was Mr. Myson. Now Mr. Myson was the founder, proprietor, and editor of the Five Towns Weekly, a new organ of public opinion which had been in existence about a year, and Denry thought that Mr. Myson had popped in to see him in pursuit of an advertisement of the Thrift Club, and at first he was not at all flattered. But Mr. Myson was not hunting for advertisements, and Denry soon saw him to be the kind of man who would be likely to depute that work to others. Of middle height, well and quietly dressed, with a sober, assured deportment, he spoke in a voice and accent that were not of the five towns. They were superior to the five towns, and in fact Mr. Myson originated in Manchester, and had seen London. He was not provincial and he beheld the five towns as part of the provinces, which no native of the five towns ever succeeds in doing. Nevertheless, his manner to Denry was the summit of easy and yet deferential politeness. He asked permission to put something before Denry, and when, rather taken aback by such smooth phrases, Denry had graciously accorded the permission, he gave a brief history of the five towns weekly, showing how its circulation had grown, and definitely stating that at that moment it was yielding a profit. Then he said, "'Now, my scheme is to turn it into a daily.' "'Very good notion,' said Denry, instinctively. "'I'm glad you think so,' said Mr. Myson, "'because I've come here in the hope of getting your assistance. "'I'm a stranger to the district, "'and I want the cooperation of someone who isn't. 
so i've come to you i need money of course though i have myself what most people would consider sufficient capital but what i need more than money is well moral support and who put you on to me asked denry mr myson smiled i put myself on to you said he i think i may say i've got my bearings in the five towns after a year's journalism in it and it appeared to me that you were the best man i could approach i always believe in flying high therein was denry flattered the visit seemed to him to seal his position in the district in a way in which his election to the bursley town council had failed to do he had been somehow disappointed with that election he had desired to display his interest in the serious welfare of the town and to answer his opponent's arguments with better ones but the burgesses of his ward appeared to have no passionate love of logic they just cried good old denry and elected him with a majority of only forty-one votes he had expected to feel a different denry when he could put councillor before his name it was not so he had been solemnly in the mayoral procession to church he had attended meetings of the council he had been nominated to the watch committee but he was still precisely the same denry though the youngest member of the council but now he was being recognised from the outside mr myson's keen manchester eye ranging over the quarter of a million inhabitants of the five towns in search of a representative individual force had settled on denry machin yes he was flattered mr myson's choice threw a rose light on all denry's career his wealth and its origin his house and stable which were the astonishment and admiration of the town his universal thrift club yea and his councillorship after all these were marvels and possibly the greatest marvel was the resigned presence of his mother in that wondrous house and the fact that she consented to employ rose chudd the incomparable sappho of charwomen for three hours every day in fine he perceived from mr myson's eyes that his position was unique and after they had chatted a little, and the conversation had deviated momentarily from journalism to house property, he offered to display Machin House, as he had christened it, to Mr. Myson, and Mr. Myson was really impressed beyond the ordinary. Mr. Myson's homage to Mrs. Machin, whom they chanced on in the paradise of the bathroom, was the polished mirror of courtesy. How Denry wished that he could behave like that when he happened to meet countesses! Then, once more in the drawing-room, they resumed the subject of newspapers. "'You know,' said Mr. Myson, "'it really is a very bad thing indeed for a district to have only one daily newspaper. I've nothing myself to say against the Staffordshire Signal. But you'd perhaps be astonished,' this in a confidential tone, "'at the feeling there is against the Signal in many quarters.' "'Really?' said Denry. "'Of course, its fault is that it isn't sufficiently interested in the great public questions of the district. And it can't be, because it can't take a definite side. It must try to please all parties. At any rate, it must offend none. That is the great evil of a journalistic monopoly. Two hundred and fifty thousand people! Why, there's an ample public for two first-class papers. Look at Nottingham, look at Bristol, look at Leeds, look at Sheffield, and their newspapers.' and Denry endeavoured to look at these great cities. Truly, the five towns was just about as big. The dizzy journalistic intoxication seized him. He did not give Mr. Myson an answer at once, 
but he gave himself an answer at once he would go into the immense adventure he was very friendly with the signal people certainly but business was business and the highest welfare of the five towns was the highest welfare of the five towns soon afterwards all the hoardings of the district spoke with one blue voice and said that the five towns weekly was to be transformed into the five towns daily with four editions beginning each day at noon and that the new organ would be conducted on the lines of a first-class evening paper the inner ring of knowing ones knew that a company entitled the five towns newspapers limited had been formed with a capital of ten thousand pounds and that mr myson held three thousand pounds worth of shares and the great denry machin one thousand five hundred and that the remainder were to be sold and allotted as occasion demanded the inner ring said that nothing would ever be able to stand up against the signal and on the other hand it admitted that denry the most prodigious card ever borne into the five towns had never been floored by anything the inner ring anticipated the future with glee denry and mr myson anticipated the future with righteous confidence as for the signal it went on its august way blind to sensational hoardings two on the day of the appearance of the first issue of the five towns daily the offices of the new paper at hanbridge gave proof of their excellent organization working in all details with an admirable smoothness in the basement a marinoni machine thundered like a sucking dove to produce fifteen thousand copies an hour on the ground floor ingenious arrangements had been made for publishing the paper in particular the iron railings to keep the boys in order in front of the publishing counter had been imitated from the signal on the first floor was the editor and founder with his staff and above that the composing department the number of stairs that separated the composing department from the machine room was not a positive advantage but bricks and mortar are inelastic and one does what one can the offices looked very well from the outside and they compared passably with the offices of the signal close by the posters were duly in the ground floor windows and gold signs one above another to the roof produced an air of lucrative success denry happened to be in the daily offices that afternoon he had had nothing specially to do with the details of the organization for details of organization were not his speciality his speciality was large leading ideas he knew almost nothing of the agreements with correspondence and press association and central news and the racing services and the fiction departments nor of the difficulties with the compositors union nor of the struggle to lower the price of paper by the twentieth of a penny per pound nor of the awful discounts allowed to certain advertisers nor of the friction with the railway company nor of the sickening adulation that had been lavished on quite unimportant news agents nor worst of all of the dearth of newsboys these matters did not attract him he could not stoop to them but when mr myson calm and proud escorted him down to the machine-room and the marinoni threw a folded pink daily almost into his hands and it looked exactly like a real newspaper and he saw one of his own descriptive articles in it and he reflected that he was an owner of it then denry was attracted and delighted and his heart beat for this pink thing was the symbol and result of the whole affair and had the effect of a miracle on him and he said to himself never guessing how many thousands of men had said it before him that a newspaper was the finest toy in the world 
About four o'clock, the publisher, in shirt-sleeves and an apron, came up to Mr. Myson and respectfully asked him to step into the publishing office. Mr. Myson stepped into the publishing office, and Denry with him, and they there beheld a small ragged boy with a bleeding nose and a bundle of dailies in his wounded hand. "'Yes,' the boy sobbed, "'and they said they'd cut my eyes out and play marbles with him if they caught me in Crown Square again.' And he threw down the papers with a final yell. The two directors learnt that the delicate threat had been uttered by four signal boys, who had objected to any fellow-boys offering any paper other than the signal for sale in Crown Square or anywhere else. Of course it was absurd. Still, absurd as it was, it continued. The central publishing offices of the Daily at Hanbridge, and its branch offices in the neighbouring towns, were like military hospitals, and the truth appeared to the directors that while the public was panting to buy copies of the Daily, the sale of the daily was being prevented by means of a scandalous conspiracy on the part of signal boys. For it must be understood that in the five towns people prefer to catch their newspaper in the street as it flies and cries. The signal had a vast army of boys, to whom every year it gave a great fate. Indeed the signal possessed nearly all the available boys, and assuredly all the most pugilistic and strongest boys. Mr. Myson had obtained boys only after persistent inquiry and demand, and such as he had found were not the fittest, and therefore were unlikely to survive. You would have supposed that in a district that never ceases to grumble about bad trade and unemployment, thousands of boys would have been delighted to buy the daily at fourpence a dozen and sell it at sixpence, but it was not so. On the second day, the dearth of boys at the offices of the daily was painful, there was that magnificent enterprising newspaper waiting to be sold, and there was the great enlightened public waiting to buy, and scarcely any business could be done, because the signal boys had established a reign of terror over their puny and upstart rivals. The situation was unthinkable. Still, unthinkable as it was, it continued. Mr. Myson had thought of everything except this. Naturally it had not occurred to him that an immense and serious effort for the general wheel was going to be blocked by a gang of tatterdemalions. He complained with dignity to the signal, and was informed with dignity by the signal that the signal could not be responsible for the playful antics of its boys in the streets, that, in short, the Five Towns was a free country. In the latter proposition Mr. Myson did not concur. After trouble in the persuasion of parents, astonishing how indifferent the Five Towns' parent was to the loss of blood by his offspring, a case reached the police court. At the hearing the signal gave a solicitor a watching brief, and that solicitor expressed the signal's horror of carnage. The evidence was excessively contradictory, and the stipendiary dismissed the summons with a good joke. The sole definite result was that the boy whose father had ostensibly brought the summons got his ear torn within a quarter of an hour of leaving the court. Boys will be boys. Still, the Daily had so little faith in human nature that it could not believe that the signal was not secretly encouraging its boys to be boys. It could not believe that the signal, out of a sincere desire for fair play, and for the highest welfare of the district, would willingly sacrifice nearly half its circulation and a portion of its advertisement revenue and the hurt tone of Mr. Myson's leading articles, seemed to indicate that, in Mr. Myson's opinion, his old arrival ought to do everything in its power to ruin itself. 
The Signal never spoke of the fight. The Daily gave shocking details of it every day. The struggle trailed on through the weeks. Then Denry had one of his ideas. An advertisement was printed in the Daily for two hundred able-bodied men to earn two shillings for working six hours a day. An address different from the address of the Daily was given. By a ruse, Denry procured the insertion of the advertisement in the Signal also. "'We must expend our capital on getting the paper onto the street,' said Denry. "'That's evident. We'll have it sold by men. We'll soon see if the signal ragamuffins will attack them. And we won't pay em by results. We'll pay em a fixed wage. That'll fetch em. And a commission on sales into the bargain. Well, I wouldn't mind engaging five hundred men. Swamp the streets. That's it. Hang expense. And when we've done the trick, we can go back to the boys. They'll have learnt their lesson.' And Mr. Myson agreed, and was pleased that Denry was living up to his reputation. The state of the earthenware trade was supposed that summer to be worse than it had been since 1869, and the grumblings of the unemployed were prodigious, even seditious. Mr. Myson, therefore, as a measure of precaution, engaged a couple of policemen to ensure order at the address, and during the hours named in the advertisement as a rendezvous for respectable men in search of a well-paid job. Having regard to the thousands of perishing families in the five towns, he foresaw a rush and a crush of eager breadwinners. Indeed, the arrangements were elaborate. Forty minutes after the advertised time for the opening of the reception of respectable men in search of money, four men had arrived. Mr. Myson, mystified, thought that there had been a mistake in the advertisement. But there was no mistake in the advertisement. A little later, two more men came— of the six, three were tipsy, and the other three absolutely declined to be seen selling papers in the streets. Two were abusive, one facetious. Mr. Myson did not know his five towns, nor did Denry. A five towns man, when he can get neither bread nor beer, will keep himself and his family on pride and water. The policeman went off to more serious duties. 3. Then came the announcement of the thirty-fifth anniversary of the signal, and of the processional fate by which the signal was at once to give itself a splendid spectacular advertisement, and to reward and enhearten its boys. The signal meant to liven up the streets of the five towns on that great day, by means of a display of all the gilt chariots of Snape's circus in the main thoroughfare. Many of the boys would be in the gilt chariots, Copies of the anniversary number of the signal would be sold from the gilt chariots. The idea was excellent, and it showed that, after all, the signal was getting just a little more afraid of its young rival than it had pretended to be. For strange to say, after a trying period of hesitation, the Five Towns Daily was slightly on the upward curve, thanks to Denry. Denry did not mean to be beaten by the puzzle which the Daily offered to his intelligence— there the daily was, full of news, and with quite an encouraging show of advertisements, printed on real paper, with real ink, and yet it would not go. Notoriously, the signal earned a net profit of at the very least five thousand a year, whereas the daily earned a net loss of at the very least sixty pounds a week, and of that sixty, quite a third was Denry's money. He could not explain it. Mr. Myson tried to rouse the public by passionately stirring up extremely urgent matters, such as the smoke nuisance, the increase of the rates, the park question, German competition, technical education for apprentices. 
but the public obstinately would not be roused concerning its highest welfare to the point of insisting on a regular supply of the daily. If a mere five thousand souls had positively demanded daily a copy of the daily, and not slept till boys or agents had responded to their wish, the troubles of the daily would soon have vanished. But this ridiculous public did not seem to care which paper was put into its hand in exchange for its halfpenny, so long as the sporting news was put there. It simply was indifferent. It failed to see the importance to such an immense district of having two flourishing and mutually opposing daily organs. The fundamental boy difficulty remained ever-present. And it was the boy difficulty that Denry perseveringly and ingeniously attacked, until at length the daily did indeed possess some sort of brigade of its own, and the bullying and slaughter in the streets, so amusing to the inhabitants, grew a little less one-sided. A week or more before the signal's anniversary day, Denry heard that the signal was secretly afraid lest the daily's brigade might accomplish the marring of its gorgeous procession, and that the signal was ready to do anything to smash the daily's brigade. He laughed. He said he did not mind. About that time hostilities were rather acute. Blood was warming, and both papers, in the excitation of rivalry, had partially lost the sense of what was due to the dignity of great organs. By chance a tremendous local football match, Knight versus Bursley, fell on the very Saturday of the procession. The rival arrangements for the reporting of the match were as tremendous as the match itself, and somehow the match seemed to add keenness to the journalistic struggle, especially as the daily favoured Bursley, and the signal was therefore forced to favour Knipe. By all the laws of hazard, there ought to have been a hitch on that historic Saturday. Telephone or telegraph ought to have broken down, or rain ought to have made play impossible. But no hitch occurred, and at five-thirty o'clock of a glorious afternoon in earliest November, the daily went to press with a truly brilliant account of the manner in which Bursley, for the first and last time in its history, had defeated Knight by one goal to none. Mr. Myson was proud. Mr. Myson defied the signal to beat his descriptive report. As for the signal's procession, well, Mr. Myson and the chief sub-editor of the daily glanced at each other and smiled. And a few minutes later, the daily boys were rushing out of the publishing-room with bundles of papers, assuredly in advance of the signal. It was at this juncture that the unexpected began to occur to the daily boys. The publishing door of the daily opened into Stanway Rents, a narrow alley in a maze of mean streets behind Crown Square. In Stanway Rents was a small warehouse, in which, according to rumours of the afternoon, a free soup-kitchen was to be opened and just before the football edition of the Daily came off the Marinoni, it emphatically was opened, and there issued from its inviting gate an odour, not, to be sure, of soup, but of toasted cheese and hot jam, such an odour as had never before tempted the nostrils of a Daily boy, a unique and omnipotent odour. Several boys, who, I may state frankly, were traitors to the Daily cause, spies and mischief-makers from elsewhere, raced unhesitatingly in, crying that toasted cheese sandwiches and jam tarts were to be distributed like lightning to all authentic newspaper lads. 
the entire gang followed scores over a hundred inwardly expecting to emerge instantly with teeth fully employed followed like a sheep into a fold and the gate was shut toasted cheese and hot jammy pastry were faithfully served to the ragged host but with no breathless haste and when loaded the boys struggled to depart they were instructed by the kind philanthropist who had fed them to depart by another exit and they discovered themselves in an enclosed yard, of which the double doors were apparently unyielding, and the warehouse door was shut also. And as the cheese and jam disappeared, shouts of fury arose on the air. The yard was so close to the offices of the daily that the chimney-pots of those offices could actually be seen, and yet the shouting brought no answer from the lords of the daily, congratulating themselves up there on their fine account of the football match, and on their celerity in going to press, and on the loyalty of their brigade. The signal, it need not be said, disavowed complicity in this extraordinary entrapping of the daily brigade by means of an odour. Could it be held responsible for the excesses of its disinterested sympathisers? Still, the appalling trick showed the high temperature to which blood had risen in the genial battle between great rival organs. Persons in the inmost ring whispered that Denry Machin had at length been bested on this critically important day. 4. Snape's Circus used to be one of the great shining institutions of North Staffordshire, trailing its magnificence on sculptured wheels from town to town, and occupying the dreams of boys from one generation to another. Its headquarters were at Axe, in the Moorlands, ten miles away from Hambridge, but the riches of old Snape had chiefly come from the five towns. At the time of the struggle between the Signal and the Daily, its decline had already begun. The aged proprietor had recently died, and the name and the horses and the chariots and the carefully repaired tents had been sold to strangers. On the Saturday of the anniversary and the football match, which was also Martinmas Saturday, the circus was set up at Oldcastle, on the edge of the five towns, and was giving its final performances of the season. Even boys will not go to circuses in the middle of a five-towns winter. The signal people had hired the processional portion of Snape's for the late afternoon and early evening, and the instructions were that the entire cortege should be round about the signal offices in marching order not later than five o'clock. But at four o'clock several gentlemen with rosettes in their buttonholes and signal posters in their hands arrived important and panting at the fairground of Oldcastle, and announced that the programme had been altered at the last moment, in order to defeat certain feared machinations of the unscrupulous daily. The cavalcade was to be split into three groups, one of which, the chief, was to enter Hanbridge by a back road, and the other two were to go to Bursley and Longshaw, respectively. In this manner the forces of advertisement would be distributed, and the chief parts of the district equally honoured. The special linen banners, pennons, and ribbons bearing the words, Signal, 35th Anniversary, etc., had already been hung and planted and draped around the gilded summits of the chariots, and after some delay the processions were started, separating at the bottom of the cattle market. The head of the Hanbridge part of the procession consisted of an enormous car of Jupiter, with six wheels and thirty-six paragorical figures, as the clown used to say and drawn by six piebald steeds guided by white reins. This coach had a windowed interior, 
At the great affairs it sometimes served as a box-office, and in the interior one of the delegates of the signal had fixed himself. From it he directed the paths of the procession. It would be futile longer to conceal that the delegate of the signal in the bowels of the car of Jupiter was not honestly a delegate of the signal at all. He was indeed Denry Machin, and none other. From this single fact it will be seen to what extent the representative of great organs had forgotten what was due to their dignity and to public decency. Esconced in his lair, Denry directed the main portion of the signal's advertising procession by all manner of discreet lanes round the skirts of Hambridge and so into the town from the hilly side, and ultimately the ten vehicles halted in Crapper Street to the joy of the simple inhabitants. Denry emerged, and wandered innocently towards the offices of his paper, which were close by. It was getting late. The first yelling of the imprisoned daily boys was just beginning to rise on the autumn air. Suddenly Denry was accosted by a young man. "'Hallo, Machin!' cried the young man. "'What have you shaved your beard off for? I scarcely knew you.' "'I just uh, thought I would, Swetnam,' said Denry, who was obviously discomposed. It was the youngest of the Swetnam boys. He and Denry had taken a sort of curt fancy to one another. "'I say,' said Swetnam confidentially, as if obeying a swift impulse, "'I did hear that the signal people meant to collar all your chaps this afternoon, and I believe they have done. Hear that now?' Swetnam's father was intimate with the signal people. "'I know,' Denry replied. "'But, but I mean, papers and all.' "'I know,' said Denry. "'Oh,' murmured Swetnam. "'But I'll tell you a secret,' Denry added. "'They aren't today's papers. "'They're yesterday's, and last week's, and last month's. "'We've been collecting them specially, "'and keeping them nice and new-looking.' "'Well, you're a caution,' murmured Swetnam. "'I am,' Denry agreed. "'A number of men rushed at that instant "'with bundles of the genuine football edition "'from the offices of the Daily.' "'Come on!' Denry cried to them. "'Come on! This way! Bye-bye, Swetnam!' And the whole file vanished round a corner. The yelling of imprisoned, cheese-fed boys grew louder. 5. In the meantime, at the signal office, which was not three hundred yards away, but on the other side of Crown Square, apprehension had deepened into anxiety as the minutes passed, and the Snape Circus procession persisted in not appearing on the horizon of the Old Castle Road. The signal would have telephoned to Snape's, but for the fact that a circus is never on the telephone. It then telephoned to its Oldcastle agent, who, after a long delay, was able to reply that the cavalcade had left Oldcastle at the appointed hour, with every sign of health and energy. Then the signal sent forth scouts, all down the Oldcastle road, to put spurs into the procession, and the scouts returned, having seen nothing. Pessimists glanced at the possibility of the whole procession having fallen into the canal at Calden Bridge. The paper was printed, the train parcels for Knight, Longshaw, Bursley, and Turnhill were dispatched, the boys were waiting, the fingers of the clock in the publishing department were simply flying. It had been arranged that the bulk of the Hanbridge edition, and in particular the first copies of it, should be sold by boys from the gilt chariots themselves. The publisher hesitated for an awful moment, and then decided that he could wait no more, 
and that the boys must sell the papers in the usual way from the pavements and gutters. There was no knowing what the daily might not be doing. And then signal boys in dozens rushed forth paper-laden, but they were disappointed boys. They had thought to ride in gilt chariots, not to paddle in mud. And almost the first thing they saw in Crown Square was the car of Jupiter in its glory, flying all the signal colours, and other cars behind. They did not rush now, they sprang as from a catapult, and alighted like flies on the vehicles. Men insisted on taking their papers from them, and paying for them on the spot. The boys were startled, they were entirely puzzled, but they had not the habit of refusing money. And off went the procession to the music of its own band, down the road to Nipe, and perhaps a hundred boys on board, cheering. The men in charge then performed a curious act. They tore down all the signal flagging, and replaced it with the emblem of the daily, so that all the great and enlightened public, wandering home in crowds from the football match at Nipe, had the spectacle of a daily procession instead of a signal procession, and could scarce believe their eyes. And dailies were sold in quantities from the cars. At Nipe station the procession curved and returned to Hambridge, and finally, after a multitudinous triumph, came to a stand, with all its daily bunting, in front of the signal offices, and Denry appeared from his lair. Denry's men fled with bundles. "'They're an hour and a half late,' said Denry calmly to one of the proprietors of the signal, who was on the pavement. "'But I've managed to get them here. I thought I'd just look in to thank you for giving such a good feed to our lads.' The telephones hummed with news of similar daily processions in Longshore and Bursley, and there was not a high-class private bar in the district that did not tinkle with delighted astonishment at the brazen, the inconceivable effrontery of that card Denry Machin. Many people foresaw lawsuits, but it was agreed that the signal had begun the game of impudence in trapping the daily lads so as to secure a holy calm for its much-trumpeted procession and Denry had not finished with the signal. In the special football edition of the Daily was an announcement, the first, of special Martinmas fates organised by the Five Towns Daily, and on that same morning every member of the Universal Thrift Club had received an invitation to said fates. They were three, held on public ground at Hanbridge, Bursley, and Longshore. They were in the style of the usual Five Towns wakes, that's to say, roundabouts, shows, gingerbread stalls, swings, coconut shies. But at each fete a new and very simple form of shy had been erected. It consisted of a row of small railway signals. "'March up! March up!' cried the shy men. "'Knock down the signal! Knock down the signal! And a packet of Turkish delight is yours! Knock down the signal!' And when you had knocked down the signal, the men cried, we wrap it up for you in the special anniversary number of the signal. And they disdainfully tore into suitable fragments, copies of the signal, which had cost Denry and Co. a hate me each, and enfolded the Turkish delight therein, and handed it to you with a smack. And all the fairgrounds were carpeted with draggled and muddy signals. People were up to the ankles in signals. The affair was the talk of Sunday, Few matters in the five towns have raised more gossip than did that enormous escapade, which Denry had invented and conducted. The moral damage to the signal was held to approach the disastrous, and now not the possibility, but the probability of lawsuits was incessantly discussed. 
On the Monday, both papers were bought with anxiety. Everybody was frothing to know what the respective editors would say. But in neither sheet was there a single word as to the affair. Both had determined to be discreet. Both were afraid. The signal feared lest it might not, if the pinch came, be able to prove its innocence of the crime of luring boys into confinement by means of toasted cheese and hot jam. The signal had also to consider its seriously damaged dignity. For such wounds, silence is the best dressing. The Daily was comprehensively afraid. It had practically driven its gilded chariots through the entire decalogue. Moreover, it had won easily in the grand altercation. It was exquisitely conscious of glory. Denry went away to Blackpool, doubtless to grow his beard. The proof of the Daily's moral and material victory was that soon afterwards there were four applicants, men of substance, for shares in the Daily Company. And this, by the way, was the end of the tale. For these applicants, who secured options on a majority of the shares, were emissaries of the signal. Armed with the options, the signal made terms with its rival, and then, by mutual agreement, killed it. The price of its death was no trifle, but it was less than a year's profits of the signal. Denry considered that he had been done, but in the depths of his heart he was glad that he had been done. He had had too disconcerting a glimpse of the rigours and perils of journalism to wish to continue it. He had scored supremely, and for him to score was life itself. His reputation as a card was far, far higher than ever. Had he so desired, he could have been elected to the House of Commons on the strength of his procession and fate. Mr. Myson, somewhat scandalised by the exuberance of his partner, returned to Manchester, and the signal, subsequently often referred to as the old lady, resumed its monopolistic sway over the opinions of a quarter of a million of people, and has never since been attacked. End of chapter 9This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 10 His Infamy. 1. When Denry, at a single stroke, werited his mother, and proved his adventurous spirit by becoming the possessor of one of the first motor-cars ever owned in Bursley, his instinct naturally was to run up to Councillor Cotterill's in it. Not that he loved Councillor Cotterill, and therefore wished to make him a partaker in his joy, for he did not love Councillor Cotterill. He had never been able to forgive Nellie's father for those patronising airs years and years before at Llandidno. Airs, indeed, which had not even yet disappeared from Cotterill's attitude towards Denry. Though they were councillors on the same town council, though Denry was getting richer, and Cotterill was assuredly not getting richer, the latter's face and tone always seemed to be saying to Denry, "'Well, you're not doing so badly for a beginner.' So Denry did not care to lose an opportunity of impressing Councillor Cotterill. Moreover, Denry had other reasons for going up to the Cotterills, 
there existed a sympathetic bond between him and Mrs. Cotterill, despite her prim taciturnity, and her exasperating habit of sitting with her hands pressed tight against her body and one over the other. Occasionally he teased her, and she liked being teased. He had glimpses now and then of her secret soul. He was perhaps the only person in Bursley thus privileged. Then there was Nellie. Denry and Nellie were great friends. For the rest of the world she had grown up, but not for Denry, who treated her as the chocolate child, while she, if she called him anything, called him respectfully, Mr. The Cotterills had a fairly large old house with a good garden, up Bycars Lane, above the new park, and above all those red streets which Mr. Cotterill had helped to bring into being. Mr. Cotterill had built new houses with terracotta facings for others, but preferred an old one in stucco for himself. His abode had been saved from the parcelling out of several Georgian estates. It was dignified. It had a double entrance gate, and from this portal the drive started off for the house-door, but deliberately avoided reaching the house-door until it had wandered in curves over the entire garden. That was the Georgian touch. The modern touch was shown in Councillor Cotterill's bay windows, bathroom, and garden squirter. There was stabling, in which were kept a Victorian dog-cart and Georgian horse, used by the councillor in his business. As sure as ever his wife or daughter wanted the dog-cart, it was either out or just going out, or the Georgian horse was fatigued and needed repose. The man who groomed the Georgian also ploughed the flower-beds, broke the windows in cleaning them, and put blacking on brown boots. Two indoor servants had differing views as to the frontier between the kingdom of his duties and the kingdom of theirs. In fact, it was the usual spacious household of successful trade in a provincial town. Denry got to Bycars Lane without a breakdown. This was in the days quite thirteen years ago, when automobilists made their wills and took food supplies when setting forth. Hence Denry was pleased. The small but useful fund of prudence in him, however, forbade him to run the car along the unending sinuous drive. The May night was fine, and he left the loved vehicle with his new furs in the shadow of a monkey-tree near the gate. As he was crunching towards the door, he had a beautiful idea. "'I'll take them all out for a spin. There'll just be room,' he said. Now even today, when the very cabman drives his automobile, a man who buys a motor cannot say to a friend, "'I've bought a motor. Come for a spin,' in the same self-unconscious accents as he would say, "'I've bought a boat. Come for a sail,' or "'I've bought a house. Come and look at it.' Even today, and in the centre of London, there is still something about a motor. Well, something. Everybody who has bought a motor, and everybody who has dreamed of buying a motor, will comprehend me. Useless to feign that a motor is the most banal thing imaginable. It is not. It remains the supreme symbol of swagger. If such is the effect of a motor in these days, and in Berkeley Square, what must it have been in that dim past, and in that dim town, three hours by the fastest express from Euston? The imagination must be forced to the task of answering this question. Then it will be understood that Denry was simply tingling with pride. "'Master in?' he demanded of the servant, who was correctly starched, but unkempt in detail. "'No, sir, he ain't been in for tea.' "'I shall take the women out, then,' said Denry to himself. "'Come in, come in,' 
cried a voice from the other side of the open door of the drawing-room. Nellie's voice. The manners and state of a family that has industrially risen combine the spectacular grandeur of the caste to which it has climbed, with the ease and freedom of the caste which it has quitted. "'Such a surprise!' said the voice. Nellie appeared, rosy. Denry threw his new motoring-cap hastily on to the hall-stand. No, he did not hope that Nellie would see it. He hoped that she would not see it. Now that the moment was really come to declare himself the owner of a motor-car, he grew timid and nervous. He would have liked to hide his hat. But then Denry was quite different from our common humanity. He was capable even of feeling awkward in a new suit of clothes. A singular person. "'Hello,' she greeted him. "'Hello,' he greeted her. Their hands touched. "'Father hasn't come yet,' she added. He fancied she was not quite at ease. "'Well,' he said, "'what's this surprise?' She motioned him into the drawing-room. The surprise was a wonderful woman, brilliant in black. Not black silk, but a softer, delicate stuff. She reclined in an easy chair, with surpassing grace and self-possession. A black Egyptian shawl, spangled with silver, was slipping off her shoulders. Her hair was dressed. That is to say, it was dressed. It was obviously and thrillingly a work of elaborate art. He could see her two feet and one of her ankles. The boots, the open-work stocking. Such boots, such open-work stocking, had never been seen in Bursley, not even at a ball. She was in mourning, and wore scarcely any jewellery. But there was a gleaming tint of gold here and there among the black, which resulted in a marvellous effect of richness. The least experienced would have said, and said rightly, this must be a woman of wealth and fashion. It was the detail that finished the demonstration. The detail was incredible. There might have been ten million stitches in the dress. Ten seamstresses might have worked on the dress for ten years. An examination of it under a microscope could but have deepened one's amazement at it. She was something new in the five towns, something quite new. Denry was not equal to the situation. He seldom was equal to a small situation, and although he had latterly acquired a considerable amount of social savoir, he was constantly mislaying it, so that he could not put his hand on it at the moment when he most required it, as now. "'Well, Denry,' said the wondrous creature in black, softly. And he collected himself as though for a plunge, and said, "'Well, Ruth?' This was the woman whom he had once loved, kissed, and engaged himself to marry. He was relieved that she had begun with Christian names, because he could not recall her surname. He could not even remember whether he had ever heard it. All he knew was that after leaving Bursley to join her father in Birmingham, she had married somebody with a double name, somebody well off, somebody older than herself, somebody apparently of high social standing, and that this somebody had died. She made no fuss. There was no implication in her demeanour that she expected to be wept over as a lone widow, or that because she and he had on a time been betrothed, therefore they could never speak naturally to each other again. She just talked as if nothing had ever happened to her and as if about twenty-four hours had elapsed since she had last seen him. He felt that she must have picked up this most useful diplomatic calmness in her contacts with her late husband's class. It was a valuable lesson to him. 
always behave as if nothing had happened, no matter what has happened. To himself he was saying, "'I'm glad I came up in my motor.' He seemed to need something in self-defence against the sudden attack of all this wealth and all this superior social tact, and the motor-car served excellently. "'I've been hearing a great deal about you lately,' said she, with a soft smile, unobtrusively rearranging a fold of her skirt. "'Well,' he replied, "'I'm sorry, I can't say the same of you. Slightly perilous, perhaps, but still he thought it rather neat.' "'Oh,' she said, "'you see, I've been so much out of England. "'We were just talking about holidays. "'I was saying to Mrs. Cotterill "'that they certainly ought to go to Switzerland this year for a change.' "'Yes, Mrs. Capron-Smith was just saying,' Mrs. Cotterill put in. "'So that was her name.' "'It would be something too lovely,' said Nellie in ecstasy. "'Switzerland! "'Astonishing how, with a single word, "'she had marked the gulf between Bursley people and herself.' The Cotterills had never been out of England. Not merely that, but the Cotterills had never dreamt of going out of England. Denry had once been to Dieppe, and had come back as though from Timbuktu with a traveller's renown, and she talked of Switzerland easily. "'I suppose it's very jolly,' he said. "'Yes,' she said. "'It's splendid in summer, but of course the time is winter for the sports.' "'Naturally, when you aren't free to take a holiday in winter, "'you must be content with summer, and very splendid it is. "'I'm sure you'd enjoy it frightfully, Nell.' "'I'm sure I should, frightfully,' Nellie agreed. "'I shall speak to father. I shall make him—' "'Now, Nellie,' her mother warned her. "'Yes, I shall, mother,' Nellie insisted. "'There is your father,' observed Mrs. Cotterill, after listening. Footsteps crossed the hall, and died away into the dining-room. "'I wonder where on earth father doesn't come in here. He must have heard us talking,' said Nellie, like a tyrant crossed in some trifle. A bell rang, and then the servant came into the drawing-room, and remarked, "'If you please, mum,' at Mrs. Cotterill, and Mrs. Cotterill disappeared, closing the door after her. "'What are they up to between them?' Nellie demanded, and she too departed, with wrinkled brow, leaving Denry and Ruth together. It could be perceived on Nellie's brow that her father was going to catch it. "'I haven't seen Mr. Cotterill yet,' said Mrs. Capron-Smith. "'When did you come?' Denry asked. "'Only this afternoon.' She continued to talk. As he looked at her, listening and responding intelligently now and then, he saw that Mrs. Capron-Smith was, in truth, the woman that Ruth had so cleverly imitated ten years before. The imitation had deceived him then. He had accepted it for genuine. It would not have deceived him now. He knew that. Oh, yes. This was the real article that could hold its own anywhere. Switzerland. And not simply Switzerland, but a refinement on Switzerland. Switzerland in winter. He defined that, in her opinion, Switzerland in summer was not worth doing, in the way of correctness, but in winter. 2. Nellie had announced a surprise for Denry as he entered the house, but Nellie's surprise for Denry, startling and successful though it proved, was as naught to the surprise which Mr. Cotterill had in hand for Nellie, her mother, Denry, the town of Bursley, and various persons up and down the country. 
Mrs. Cotterell came hysterically in upon the duologue between Denry and Ruth in the drawing-room. From the activity of her hands, which, instead of being decently folded one over the other, were waving round her head in the strangest way, it was clear that Mrs. Cotterell was indeed under the stress of a very unusual emotion. "'It's those creditors! At last! I knew it would be! It's all those creditors! They won't let him alone, and now they've done it!' So Mrs. Cotterell. She dropped into a chair. She no longer had any sense of shame of what was due to her dignity. She seemed to have forgotten that certain matters are not proper to be discussed in drawing-rooms. She had left the room Mrs. Councillor Cotterill. She had returned to it nobody in particular, the personification of defeat. The change had operated in about five minutes. Mrs. Capron-Smith and Denry glanced at each other and even Mrs. Capron-Smith was at a loss for a moment. Then Ruth approached Mrs. Cotterill and took her hand. Perhaps Mrs. Capron-Smith was not so astonished after all. She and Nellie's mother had always been very friendly, and in the Five Towns, very friendly means a lot. "'Perhaps if you were to leave us,' Ruth suggested, twisting her head to glance at Denry. It was exactly what he desired to do. There could be no doubt that Ruth was supremely a woman of the world. Her tact was faultless. He left them, saying to himself, "'Well, here's a go.' In the hall, through an open door, he saw Councillor Cotterill standing against the dining-room mantelpiece. When Cotterill caught sight of Denry, he straightened himself into a certain uneasy perkiness. "'A young man,' he said, in a counterfeit of his old patronising tone, "'Come in here. You might as well hear about it. You're a friend of ours. Come in and shut the door.' Nellie was not in view. Denry went in and shut the door. "'Sit down,' said Cotterill. And it was just as if he had said, "'Now you're a fairly bright sort of youth, and you haven't done so badly in life, and as a reward I mean to admit you to the privilege of hearing about our ill-luck, which for some mysterious reason reflects more credit on me than your good luck reflects on you, young man.' And he stroked his straggling grey beard. "'I'm going to file my petition to-morrow,' said he, and gave a short laugh. "'Really?' said Denry, who could think of nothing else to say. His name was not Capron Smith. "'Yes, they won't leave me any alternative,' said Mr. Cotterill. Then he gave a brief history of his late commercial career to the young man, and he seemed to figure it as a sort of tug-of-war between his creditors and his debtors, he himself being the rope. He seemed to imply that he had always done his sincere best to attain the greatest good of the greatest number, but that those wrong-headed creditors had consistently thwarted him. However, he bore them no grudge. It was the fortune of the tug-of-war. He pretended, with shabby magnificence of spirit, that a bankruptcy, at the age of near sixty, in a community where one has cut a figure, is a mere passing episode. "'Are you surprised?' he asked, foolishly, with a sheepish smile. Denry took vengeance for all the patronage that he had received during a decade. "'No,' he said. "'Are you?' Instead of kicking Denry out of the house for an impudent young jackanapes, Mr. Cotterill simply resumed his sheepish smile. Denry had been surprised for a moment, but he had quickly recovered. Cotterill's downfall was one of those events which any person of acute intelligence can foretell, after they have happened. 
Cotterill had run the risks of a speculative builder. Built and mortgaged, built and mortgaged, sold at a profit, sold without profit, sold at a loss, and failed to sell, given bills, second mortgages, and third mortgages. And because he was a builder, and could do nothing but build, he had continued to build, in defiance of Bursley's lack of enthusiasm for his erections. If rich gold deposits had been discovered in Bursley Municipal Park, Cotterill would have owned a mining camp and amassed immense wealth. But unfortunately, gold deposits were not discovered in the park. Nobody knew his position. Nobody ever does know the position of a speculative builder. He did not know it himself. There had been rumours, but they had been contradicted in an adequate way. His recent refusal of the mayoral chain, due to lack of spare coin, had been attributed to prudence. His domestic existence had always been conducted on the same moderately lavish scale. He had always paid the baker, the butcher, the tailor, the dressmaker. And now he was to file his petition in bankruptcy, and to-morrow the entire town would have been seeing it coming for years. "'What shall you do?' Denry inquired in amicable curiosity. "'Well,' said Cottrell, "'that's the point. I've got a brother, a builder, in Toronto, you know.' He's doing very well. Building is building over there. I wrote to him a bit since, and he replied by the next mail, by the next mail, that what he wanted was just a man like me to overlook things. He's getting an old man now, is John. So you see, there's an opening waiting for me. As if to say, the righteous are never forsaken. I tell you all this as you're a friend of the family like, he added. Then... After an expanse of vagueness, he began, hopefully, cheerfully, undauntedly. Even now, if I could get hold of a couple of thousand, I could pull through handsome, and there's plenty of security for it. Bit late now, isn't it? Not it. If only someone who really knows the town, and has faith in the property market, would come down with a couple of thousand, well, he might double it in five years. Really? "'Yes,' said Cotterill. "'Look at Clare Street.' Clare Street was one of his terracotta masterpieces. "'You now,' said Cotterill, insinuating. "'I don't expect anyone can teach you much about the value of property in this town. You know as well as I do. If you happen to have a couple of thousand loose, by gosh, it's a chance in a million.' "'Yes,' said Denry. "'I should say that's just about what it was.' "'I put it before you,' Cotterill proceeded, gathering way, and missing the flavour of Denry's remark. "'Because you're a friend of the family. You're so often here. Why, it's pretty near ten years.' Denry sighed. "'I expect I come and see you all about once a fortnight, fairly regular. That makes two hundred and fifty times in ten years, yes?' "'A couple of thou,' said Cotterill, reflectively. Two hundred and fifty into two thousand? Eight. Eight pounds a visit. A shade thick, Cotterill. A shade thick. You might be half a dozen fashionable physicians rolled into one. Never before had he called the councillor Cotterill, unadorned. Mr. Cotterill flushed and rose. Denry does not appear to advantage in this interview. He failed in magnanimity. The only excuse that can be offered for him is that Mr. Cotterill had called him young man once or twice too often in the course of ten years. It's subtle. 3. No, whispered Ruth in all her raps, 
"'Don't bring it up to the door. "'I'll walk down with you to the gate and get in there.' "'He nodded. "'They were off together. "'Ruth, it had appeared, was actually staying at the Five Towns Hotel in Knype, "'which at that epoch was the only hotel in the Five Towns "'seriously pretending to be first class, in the full-page advertisement sense. "'The fact that Ruth was staying at the Five Towns Hotel impressed Denry anew. "'Assuredly she did things in the grand manner.' She had meant to walk down by the park to Bursley Station, and catch the last loop-lane train to Knype, and when Denry suddenly disclosed the existence of his motor-car, and proposed to see her to her hotel in it, she in her turn had been impressed. The astonishment in her tone, as she exclaimed, "'Have you got a motor?' was the least in the world naive. Thus they departed together from the stricken house. Ruth, saying brightly to Nellie, who had reappeared in a painful state of demoralisation, that she should return on the morrow. And Denry went down the obscure drive with a final vision of the poor child Nellie as she stood at the door to speed them. It was extraordinary how that child had remained a child. He knew that she must be more than halfway through her twenties, yet she persisted in being the merest girl. A delightful little thing— but no savoir-faire, no equality to a situation, no spectacular pride, just a nice, bright, strangely girlish. The Cotterills had managed that bad evening badly. They had shown no dignity, no reserve, no discretion, and old Cotterill had been simply fatuous in his suggestion. As for Mrs. Cotterill, she was completely overcome— and it was due solely to Ruth's calm, managing influence that Nellie, nervous and whimpering, had wound herself up to come and shut the front door after the guests. It was all very sad. When he had successfully started the car, and they were sliding down the Moorhouse Hill together, side by side, their shoulders touching, Denry threw off the nightmarish effect of the bankrupt household. After all, there was no reason why he should be depressed. He was not a bankrupt. He was steadily adding riches to riches. He acquired wealth mechanically now. Owing to the habits of his mother, he never came within miles of living up to his income. And Ruth, she too was wealthy. He felt that she must be wealthy in the strict significance of the term. And she completed wealth by experience of the world. She was his equal. She understood things in general. She had lived, travelled, suffered, reflected— in short, she was a complete article of manufacture. She was no little clinging, raw girl. Further, she was less hard than of yore. Her voice and gestures had a different quality. The world had softened her, and it occurred to him suddenly that her sole fault, extravagance, had no importance now that she was wealthy. He told her all that Mr. Cotterill had said about Canada— and she told him all that Mrs. Cotterill had said about Canada, and they agreed that Mr. Cotterill had got his deserts, and that in its own interest Canada was the only thing for the Cotterill family, and the sooner the better. People must accept the consequences of bankruptcy. Nothing could be done. "'I think it's a pity Nellie should have to go,' said Denry. "'Oh, do you?' replied Ruth. "'Yes, going out to a strange country like that.' She's not what you might call the Canadian kind of a girl. If she could only get something to do here, if something could be found for her. Oh, I don't agree with you at all, said Ruth. 
"'Do you really think she ought to leave her parents just now? "'Her place is with her parents. "'And besides, between you and me, "'she'll have a much better chance of marrying there "'than in this town, after all this. "'Of course I shall be very sorry to lose her, "'and Mrs. Cotterill too, but—' "'I expect you're right,' Denry concurred. "'And they sped on luxuriously "'through the lamp-lit night of the five towns and Denry pointed out his house as they passed it, and they both thought much of the security of their positions in the world, and of their incomes, and of the honeyed deference of their bankers, and also of the mistake of being a failure. You could do nothing with a failure. 4. On a frosty morning in early winter, you might have seen them together in a different vehicle, a first-class compartment of the express from Knight to Liverpool, they had the compartment to themselves, and they were installed therein with every circumstance of luxury. Both were enwrapped in furs, and a fur rug united their knees in its shelter. Magazines and newspapers were scattered about to the value of a labourer's hire for a whole day. And when Denry's eye met the guards, it said, Shilling. In short, nobody could possibly be more superb than they were on that morning in that compartment. The journey was the result of peculiar events. Mr. Gotterill had made himself a bankrupt, and cast away the robe of a town councillor. He had submitted to the inquisitiveness of the official receiver, and to the harsh prying of those rampant, baying beasts, his creditors. He had laid bare his books, his correspondence, his lack of method, his domestic extravagance, and the distressing fact that he had continued to trade long after he knew himself to be insolvent. He had, for several months, in the interests of the said beasts, carried on his own business as a manager at a nominal salary, and gradually everything that was his had been sold, and during the final weeks the Cotterill family had been obliged to quit their dismantled house and exist in lodgings. It had been arranged that they should go to Canada by way of Liverpool, and on the day before the journey of Denry and Ruth to Liverpool, they had departed from the borough of Bursley, which Mr. Cotterill had so extensively faced with terracotta, unhonoured and unsung. Even Denry, though he had visited them in their lodgings to say good-bye, had not seen them off at the station. But Ruth Capron-Smith had seen them off at the station. She had interrupted a sojourn in Southport in order to come to Bursley, and dispatched them therefrom with due friendliness. Certain matters had to be attended to after their departure, and Ruth had promised to attend to them. Now, immediately after seeing them off, Ruth had met Denry in the street. "'Do you know,' she said brusquely, "'those people are actually going steerage. I'd no idea of it. Mr. and Mrs. Cottrell kept it from me, and I shouldn't have heard of it, only from something Nelly said. That's why they've gone to-day. The boat doesn't sail till to-morrow afternoon.' "'Steerage?' and Denry whistled. "'Yes,' said Ruth. "'Nothing but pride, of course. Old Cotterill wants to have every penny he can scrape, so as to be able to make the least tiny bit of a show when he gets to Toronto. And so steerage. Just think of Mrs. Cotterill and Nelly in the steerage. If I'd known of it, I should have altered that, I can tell you, and pretty quickly, too. Now it's too late.' "'No, it isn't,' Denry contradicted her flatly. "'But they've gone.' I could telegraph to Liverpool for saloon berths. There's bound to be plenty at this time of year. 
and I could run over to Liverpool to-morrow and catch them on the boat and make them change. She asked whether he really thought he could, and he assured her. Second-class cabins would be better,' said she. "'Why?' "'Well, because of dressing for dinner and so on. "'They haven't got the clothes, you know.' "'Of course,' said Denry. "'Listen,' she said, with an enchanting smile. "'Let's halve the cost, you and I, "'and let's go to Liverpool together "'and uh, make the little gift and arrange things. "'I'm leaving for Southport to-morrow, "'and Liverpool's on my way.' "'Denry was delighted by the suggestion, "'and telegraphed to Liverpool with success.' Thus they found themselves on that morning in the Liverpool Express together. The work of benevolence in which they were engaged had a powerful influence on their mood, which grew both intimate and tender. Ruth made no concealment of her regard for Denry, and as he gazed across the compartment at her, exquisitely mature, she was slightly older than himself, dressed to a marvel, perfect in every detail of manner, knowing all that was to be known about life, and secure in a handsome fortune. As he gazed, Denry reflected joyously, victoriously. "'I've got the dibs, of course, but she's got them too, perhaps more. Therefore she must like me for myself alone. This brilliant creature has been everywhere and seen everything, and she comes back to the five towns, and comes back to me.' It was his proudest moment and in it he saw his fortune far more glorious than he had dreamt. "'When shall you be out of mourning?' he inquired. "'In two months,' said she. This was not a proposal and acceptance, but it was very nearly one. They were silent and happy. Then she said, "'Do you ever have business in Southport?' And he said, in a unique manner, "'I shall have.' Another silence. This time, he felt, he would marry her. 5. The White Star Liner, Titubic, stuck out of the water like a row of houses against the landing stage. There was a large crowd on her promenade deck, and a still larger crowd on the landing stage. Above the promenade deck, officers paced on the navigating deck, and above that was the airy bridge, and above that the funnels, smoking, and somewhere still higher a flag or two fluttering in the icy breeze. And behind the crowd on the landing-stage stretched a row of four-wheeled cabs and rickety horses. The landing-stage swayed ever so slightly on the tide. Only the ship was apparently solid, apparently cemented in foundations of concrete. On the starboard side of the promenade-deck, among a hundred other small groups, was a group consisting of Mr. and Mrs. Cotterill, and Ruth, and Denry. Nellie stood a few feet apart. Mrs. Cotterill was crying. People naturally thought she was crying because of the adieus, but she was not. She wept because Denry and Ruth, by sheer force of will, had compelled them to come out of the steerage, and occupy beautiful and commodious berths in the second cabin, where the manner of the stewards was quite different. She wept because they had been caught in the steerage. She wept because she was ashamed, and because people were too kind. She was at once delighted and desolated. She wanted to outpour psalms of gratitude, and also she wanted to curse. Mr. Cotterill said stiffly that he should repay, and that soon. An immense bell sounded impatiently. 
"'We'd better be shunting,' said Denry. "'That's the second. "'In exciting crises he sometimes employed such peculiar language as this, "'and he was very excited. "'He had done a great deal of rushing about, "'the upraising of the Cotterill family from the social Hades of the steerage "'to the respectability of the second cabin had demanded all his energy, "'and a lot of Ruth's. "'Ruth kissed Mrs. Cotterill, and then Nellie.' and Mrs. Cotterill and Nellie acquired rank and importance for the whole voyage, by reason of being kissed in public by a woman so elegant and aristocratic as Ruth Capron Smith. And Denry shook hands. He looked brightly at the parents, but he could not look at Nellie, nor could she look at him. Their handshaking was perfunctory. For months their playful intimacy had been in abeyance. "'Good-bye. Good luck.' "'Thanks. Good-bye. Good-bye.' The horrible bell continued to insist. "'All non-passengers ashore. All ashore.' The numerous gangways were thronged with people obeying the call, and handkerchiefs began to wave, and there was a regular vibrating tremor through the ship. Mr. and Mrs. Cotterill turned away. Ruth and Denry approached the nearest gangway, and Denry stood aside and made a place for her to pass, and, as always, a number of women pushed into the gangways immediately after her, and Denry had to wait, being a perfect gentleman. His eye caught Nellie's. She had not moved. He felt then as he had never felt in his life. No, absolutely never. Her sad, her tragic glance rendered him so uncomfortable and yet so deliciously uncomfortable, that the symptoms startled him. He wondered what would happen to his legs. He was not sure that he had legs. However, he demonstrated the existence of his legs by running up to Nellie. Ruth was by this time swallowed in the crowd on the landing stage. He looked at Nellie. Nellie looked at him. Her lips twitched. "'What am I doing here?' he asked of his soul. She was not at all well-dressed. She was indeed shabby, in a steerage style. Her hat was awry, her gloves miserable. No girlish pride in her distraught face, no determination to overcome fate, no consciousness of ability to meet a bad situation. Just those sad eyes and those twitching lips. "'Look here,' Denry whispered. "'You must come ashore for a second. I've got something I want to give you, and I've left it in the cab.' "'But there's no time. The bells—' "'Bosh!' he exclaimed gruffly, extinguishing her timid, childish voice. "'You won't go for at least a quarter of an hour. All that's only a dodge to get people off in plenty of time. Come on, I tell you.' And in a sort of hysteria he seized her thin, long hand, and dragged her along the deck to another gangway, down whose steep slope they stumbled together. The crowd of sightseers and handkerchief-wavers jostled them. They could see nothing but heads and shoulders, and the great side of the ship rising above. Denry turned her back on the ship. This way. He still held her hand. He struggled to the cab rank. Which one is it? she asked. Anyone. Never mind which. Jump in. And to the first driver whose eye met his, he said, Lime Street Station. The gangways were being drawn away. A hoarse boom filled the air, and then a cheer. "'But I shall miss the boat,' the dazed girl protested. "'Jump in!' he pushed her in. "'But I shall miss the—' 
"'I know you will,' he replied, as if angrily. "'Do you suppose I was going to let you go by that steamer? Not much. "'But mother and father, I'll telegraph. They'll get it on landing. "'And where's Ruth?' "'Be hanged to Ruth!' he shouted furiously. "'As the cab rattled over the cobbles, "'the Titubic slipped away from the landing-stage. "'The irretrievable had happened. "'Nellie burst into tears. "'Look here,' Denry said savagely. "'If you don't dry up, I shall have to cry myself.' "'What are you going to do with me?' she whimpered. "'Well, what do you think? "'I'm going to marry you, of course.' His aggrieved tone might have been supposed to imply that people had tried to thwart him, but that he had no intention of being thwarted, nor of asking permissions, nor of conducting himself as anything but a fierce tyrant. As for Nellie, she seemed to surrender. Then he kissed her, also angrily. He kissed her several times, yes, even in Lord Street itself, less and less angrily. "'Where are you taking me to?' she inquired, humbly, as a captive. "'I shall take you to my mother's,' he said. "'Will she like it?' "'She'll either like it or lump it,' said Denry. "'It'll take a fortnight.' "'What?' "'The notice and things.' In the train, in the midst of a great submissive silence, she murmured, "'It'll be simply awful for father and mother.' "'That can't be helped,' said he. "'and they'll be far too seasick to bother their heads about you.' "'You can't think how you've staggered me,' said she. "'You can't think how I've staggered myself,' said he. "'When did you decide to?' "'When I was standing at the gangway, and you looked at me,' he answered. "'But—' "'It's no use butting,' he said. "'I'm like that. That's me, that is.' "'It was the bare truth that he had staggered himself.' but he had staggered himself into a miraculous, ecstatic happiness. She had no money, no clothes, no style, no experience, no particular gifts. But she was she. And when he looked at her, calmed, he knew that he had done well for himself. He knew that if he had not yielded to that terrific impulse, he would have done badly for himself. Mrs. Machin had what she called a ticklish night of it. 6. The next day he received a note from Ruth, dated Southport, inquiring how he came to lose her on the landing-stage, and expressing concern. It took him three days to reply, and even then the reply was a bad one. He had behaved infamously to Ruth. So much could not be denied. Within three hours of practically proposing to her, he had run off with a simple girl who was not fit to hold a candle to her, and he did not care. That was the worst of it. He did not care. Of course the facts reached her. The facts reached everybody. For the singular reappearance of Nellie in the streets of Bursley, immediately after her departure for Canada, had to be explained. Moreover, the infamous Denry was rather proud of the facts, and the town inevitably said, Machin all over that, snatching the girl off the blooming lugger, Machin all over and Denry agreed privately that it was Machin all over. What other chap, he demanded of the air, would have thought of it, or had the pluck? It was mere malice on the part of destiny that caused Denry to run across Mrs. Capron-Smith at Euston some weeks later. Happily, they both had immense nerve. 
"'Dear me,' said she, "'what are you doing here?' "'Only honeymooning,' he said. End of chapter 10